Welcome to Conversation Pace. I'm your host, Brian Rossetti, and founder of V.02. Before I dive in to introduce our next guest, I want to thank you, the listeners, who have helped us grow the podcast since our launch back in March. In today's attention economy, we understand it's tough to compete for your time, so we hope you're enjoying these conversations and finding them useful. This is an ad-free venture, and we plan to keep it that way. Our goal is to continue featuring athletes and coaches with interesting stories that we can all learn from. You can still support us by following and rating us on Apple Podcasts or by following us on Spotify. Always feel free to send us a message if you have feedback or future guest requests. Okay, in episode 18, I spoke with Olivia Fuso. Olivia is an exercise scientist, ultra runner, running coach on VDOT, and chief wellness officer of the Black Magic Trail Sisters, which is a virtual social support group promoting women's wellness through consistent movement. She works as a physical activity researcher and associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology at the UAB School of Public Health. She received her PhD in nutritional epidemiology from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and completed a postdoc at the University of Miami in exercise science. Olivia is also a fellow of the American College of Sports Medicine. As you can imagine, with this type of background, we really looked forward to setting this conversation up. I discuss how Olivia got into running, the recent increase in participation in the sport amongst African Americans, and her work as an ambassador. We get into the causes and misinformation about obesity, the problem of BMI, and her nutritional advice for athletes. We close with why she feels she is stronger than ever at age 51, and how she stayed injury-free training for ultras during the pandemic. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Olivia, thanks so much for taking time. We really appreciate it. Excited to, to chat. Thanks for having me. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you got into running. Uh, well, um, I've been an athlete pretty much all of my life. Um, I was a tennis player starting when I was eight years old. And I think that kind of informed you know, the rest of my career in life, um, I studied um, wellness and community health and um, exercise science. And I am currently um, a nutritional epidemiologist, although I focus more on the energy expenditure side of the equation. So I, my research is focused much more on physical activity. And so I stumbled into running and haven't stopped since. And when we initially connected, you talked about the environment that you grew up in sort of encouraged, I guess, sort of put you on this path towards being outdoors and and towards fitness and, and wellness. Is that sort of what you attribute to getting into sort of the career, um, you know, development that you have? Yeah, so um, I grew up in a small um, sort of rural college town and Mm -hmm. being outdoors was just a part of what we did. I mean, my family had a garden. My dad was a very um, active outdoors person, um, hunting and fishing. And I was very curious and always wanting to sort of follow him around. It wasn't until later, though, that I found out that both my parents had been track athletes in high school and were very good. Like, I didn't know about that part. So for me, Mm. yes, you know, I saw them being very active, but it wasn't necessarily connected to engaging in sports themselves. Um, And so I, I think it was just natural for me to um, sort of gravitate towards being outside and, and being active. Were your parents in academic, um, the academic world as well, or, or you were just, you lived near the college town? Uh, So I lived in the college town, but my parents were both entrepreneurs. Um, but my uncle was a college professor, professor of chemistry 
at South Carolina State University. And I spent a lot of time um, with him in his lab and doing experiments. So I think that kind of really solidified my love of science. Um, you know, mm. he helped me with my um, fifth grade science project, um, but but it really set me on a path to become a scientist. That's really cool. And then what about running? Do you remember your first connection or your first moment, running moment, and when that was? Well, you know, um, I was always like, you know, a kid in a neighborhood running and, you know, we would do like the uh, little foot races in the community. But my first real experience with, you know, more of organized running was I tried out for cross country in high school and it was the opposite season. The track season was opposite of the tennis season. And so I had a chance to, you know, go out and try cross country. I thought I was going to die, um, but, you know, <laughs> I, I survived at least one season. After that, I was like, okay, this is not for me. And I just kind of went <laughs> to playing tennis. What was the introduction to, to cross country? Or do you remember the reasons that you wanted to sign up? Do you think, again, it was just the idea of, oh, this is cool. We get to, you know, run in nature or it's not just running in a circle. What was the, or was it just, you know, yeah. wanting to join a, a team? Well, you know, I think when I was younger, we we had um, kind of challenge with the neighborhood kids and uh, mm. we wanted to see if we could run all the way um, from our house uh, to there was there was a, a gentleman who had like a, a nature preserve, not not that far from us. But the, the goal was if you could run down to this pond and make it back, then that meant that you were like strong. Um, and, but it was, it seemed far as a kid, it was probably only two miles round trip. And, you know, the kids in the neighborhood, we would, you know, at different times go run down there and then come back to kind of brag about the fact that we had run all the way down to, um, <laughs> pond and we made it back and we didn't die. <laughs> That's cool. I love that. I used to do that all the time. As a kid, that was just for me. It was more competitive, but I look back um, and think about those those moments and how they impacted me in terms of feeling like accomplished. I recently did like a run walk with my daughter around a local lake here in Pennsylvania, and it's three and a half miles around. So we did. Um, I didn't want to make it too difficult or um, put her. In a situation where she had a bad experience so we did run walk the whole way around and um i'll never forget the look on her face when she realized that she made it all the way around and it wasn't that hard um so i'm wondering if that's a going to be a big moment uh for her in terms of impact and um just you know the positive association with 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 fitness so my my fingers are crossed yeah, that's great. Um, one of the things we also used to do is uh, run through the woods from our house to my uncle's house. And, you know, we thought it was really, really far. But, it, you know, now going back and mapping it on Google, it's probably only about a quarter of a mile. But there was <laughs> something about running through the woods, you know, and of course, mm. you were imagining that there was some danger in the woods and so we needed to watch our step and you know make it all the way through to watch out for alligators and you know bears neither of which were in that part of you know the country but just you know childhood imagination yeah that's really cool and then what about health and fitness growing up in your schools um did you go to public school and um what was the state of physical fitness in school. Do you have any um, memories in terms of what it was like and how it, how it was emphasized? Yeah, so, you know, I, I think the time that I really uh, w was uh, very cognizant of um, P 
PE probably really started in about the fifth or sixth grade. And of course, we had those. Um, I'm kind of giving away my age, but we, we had those old <laughs> films that we would have to, you know, watch in health class that tell you all about the human body. And then um, we, we also engaged in some um you know, learning about the four food groups and, you know, why it was important to be physically active. And then we'd go outside and, and engage in PE. Um, and we'd have to dress out in those little weird zip up uniforms. And, uh, <laughs> you know, of course, you know, one of the things that everyone had to do and they mostly dreaded it, except for people like me, was running laps around mm. um, the, the big field. And so for some people that was punishment, but I guess because I was somewhat fit, it wasn't punishment to me. Like I enjoyed running around um, the field, mm. um, you know, and I, I think my experience was probably more positive than maybe some of the other girls. I, I was probably also less self-conscious about what boys thought. Um I just had this orientation towards anything a boy can do, I can do. And so I really enjoyed being outside. And I think that's how I got introduced to um, actually participating in sports was through um, like the, the PE program. That's cool. So Jack uh, Daniels is such a huge advocate. He's an activist regarding you know, physical fitness and really you know changing standards and trying to get back on track um he always talks about the physical fitness program and his school growing up and he attributes that to his success as an athlete and um just his whole career sort of putting him down that path and um so i'm always curious to hear but i agree like so early it seems like kids develop that mentality that or that association of running you know, as punishment. And I don't know where, where do you think that comes from? Is it just early on kids are participating in sports and it's sort of like, you, you know, go run some laps, um, you know, to, as punishment or I'm not sure yeah, where exactly. That, that used to be from, a thing. You know? That used to be a thing. It really was a punishment, a form of punishment. If you don't perform, if you don't listen, um, if if you're um, not doing what we want you to do, then you have to run so many laps. If you don't achieve a certain goal, you have to run so many laps. You know, so it, for a lot of kids, it really was a punishment. I think one of the things that also um, it makes it not that kids want to do that is they may not have um, the self-efficacy or this the sports readiness to be able to just jump right into an activity mm -hmm. um, that's uh, more endurance based. So, yeah. you know, kids first start running, they may not have the fitness. So like the idea of you doing walk run with your daughter helped to break it up. So she didn't get to that point where she felt so winded and couldn't go on. There was a little rest period to help her gain that confidence. And I think back in the day, everything was kind of like, you know, go big or go home, uh, you know, pushing kids <laughs> way harder than they needed to be. Yeah. And we, I think if you catch them early enough, um, I want to talk about some of the community work that you're doing. And uh, um, there was a kids running program that I uh, organized and launched in New York City. And what we found was when we did laps, like you said, there was definitely pushback initially. These are third, fourth and fifth graders. And if you tell them, OK, let's go run, you know, seven or eight laps. New York City painted, uh, I want to say there were roughly about 150 meters. They painted um, track lines in most of the, the public schools, um, playgrounds, um, or the outside area. And so it's nice. So we were able to leverage that with the kids before school. 
And, and, you know, you say, okay, let's start, we're going to do laps. And what happens is every, all the kids sprint out and, you know, they're kind of racing and then they get tired and then they start walking and then they see friends go by them and then they sprint again, you know, to catch up or to pass them. And then they're tired. They start walking. They're three or four laps in. And then they're like, this sucks. You know, this is, this is not fun. This is tiring. I don't feel good. So we then decided, okay, let's you know break them up into pairs. Don't start them all together. And the goal, apps, but the other goal was, you have to talk to your partner the entire time, whether it's about a sports game or homework or whatever's going on. And we kind of started them off in waves. And it was fascinating because they would sort of forget that they were running and they were going as slow as they needed to go so that they can chat and so that it was easy. And they realized, okay, this isn't a race. And then after a week or two, we would say, okay, guys, you know, that, that's 10, 10 laps. Let's, you know, huddle up. We're going to do a game. And, and then they'd start asking us if they could do more laps. They'd, they didn't yeah. want to stop. <laughs> And the coaches and I are looking at each other like, we just, like, what just happened? Like, we created these, like, running log monsters now. Like, they're, they're like, can I get a few more laps in? They're like, and so amazing the switch. And so I hope that impacted the kids long term. But it was fascinating to see when you sort of flip that, that, that switch with them. Yeah, so I've seen the similar kind of behavior um, with the Girls on the Run program. Um, so mm-hmm. I spent quite a bit of time um, engaging with that organization and actually having opportunity to go to various um, schools around the city. And so, you know, not every school is created equal, but you see a very similar pattern across the girls. Um, even if they have like a background in running, like, Maybe they run with their parents or um, they're part of a little mini track team. It's kind of that same thing. When they start out, it's the sprint around as fast as you can. And and then, you know, then they're lying on the ground like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. And uh, I've, I've seen that similar thing. And so, you know, one of the things I tried to do is sort of engage them um, in that process of running. And so. I guess a similar way gets them to slow down and and think about what they're doing or not think about what they're doing. Just kind of get them to slow down. Yeah, it can be. I remember as a kid, you know, when getting in some of my early races, this would have been fifth or sixth grade. And and when I realized how much it hurt because I was super competitive, then it, it became intimidating. You know, then there was some anxiety around going into to a race or participating in a race. Um, so to, to sort of flip the script a little bit with these kids, um, what I found interesting was that it became less intimidating, a little bit more empowering that, Hey, wow, I accomplished that. You know, I ran two miles without stopping and I feel pretty good. Maybe they weren't you know, thinking like, Oh, this makes me feel good. But I think that's, that's super helpful. Um, so hopefully we can, I mean, I'd like to hear a little bit more. You, you're working with, with Black Girl, Girls Run in Birmingham now. And then there's also um, Girls on the Run, Birmingham Metro. Those are two different organizations. Yeah. So um, Black Girls Run is actually a national organization that targets uh, women. And so their membership is uh, adult women, I believe 21 and above. Um, And so I had gotten involved with them uh, quite some years ago and served as an ambassador for several years. And um, within our first, um, first four months, we had over 500 women to join our Facebook group. And, you know, we had quite a few women to come out and participate on a weekly basis at various um, run group sessions. Um, I'm not, and and it kind of spawned across the state of Alabama. So there are actually chapters in four different cities here in Alabama. Mm-hmm. 
there are over 75 cities and over 250,000 women that are being reached by that program. And so I'm currently involved in some research with that group to better understand, you know, what is it about the social environment of that group that potentially allows the women to engage in physical activity long, you know, because of the in leisure time activity that we see between black women and white women. So um, that was not like this evidence-based program that came about. It was purely a movement of women coming together and realizing that other women wanted to run, but they needed some support to run. Um, And it just blew up. And so as a scientist, I'm trying to understand what made that work? What made that happen? Um, so that's yeah. a, that's a different sort of thing. Um, and then Girls on the Run started in, I want to say, 1999 when I was a doctoral student yeah. in North Carolina. And I got wind of the program and participated with the girls there. Then when I moved to Birmingham, um, I spent some time um, being a part of their um, board of directors and, um, you know, and I still support them as much as I possibly can uh, through funding opportunities, fundraising, and um, also going out and, and trying to help recruit coaches and supporting their celebratory end of the year event. So. You know, I and want to do support women and yeah. girls. And girls on the run, they usually the you say the celebratory event is that the five k or is that separate from? They usually the, does the program ends with the five k with the girls participating yeah. in a five k. Yes. So at the end of each season, they have a season in the spring and a season in the fall. So in the spring, they put on mm-hmm. their own event here in Birmingham. And so it's all the um, Girls on the Run um, uh, school programs, and they bring them all together um, for a a big event. They're usually about 700 participants, and the girls will come with their families. All the coaches will be there, and all the community supporters will come as well. So it's a big fundraising event for them as well to you know, keep the program going um, across the city. And then in the fall, um, they typically join one of the other um, uh, races that are happening in Birmingham. You know, we have a race here every weekend. And so um, (laughs) the Magic City Half Marathon also has a 5K and they have the girls celebration with that as well. And so from my vantage point as a coach in New York City, um, as an owner of, of VDOT, this this coaching platform, it, it seems safe to say that there is a trend. I don't have any data um, based on what you're saying, too, with the girls, um, with Black Girls Run, that there is an increase in participation in distance running among African. Americans. Do you feel like that's been a trend for now how long? And um, I'd like to just talk about some of the reasons that you think, you know, since you've been seeing it as well. Yeah. So, you know, um, I think that prior to Black Girls Run coming um, into fruition, there were um, you know, more black people getting into running. Um, but the, the support systems weren't really there. So typically if you'd go to, um, a distance race, like a half marathon marathon, um, you would see a few black people. So that means that black people have always Mm -hmm. been out there doing some distance. It just wasn't in large numbers and it, you know, road running can be extremely competitive. You know, you have to run the whole way and you have to run really fast. Um, And so it really wasn't open for uh, many sort of just amateur runners. And I think once um, Black Girls Run, you know, started, it kind of normalized the behavior that it doesn't matter your shape or your size or your color. You can find your tribe 
in long distance and you don't have to be super fast, you can find your tribe and, and, and go out and do it. And so then secondary to that, now people have the support to learn more about the training and, you know, what would it, it would, it became more accessible um, to, right. to have people. I mean, because, you know, historically we've seen mostly um, African-Americans in uh, short distance running track. Yeah. 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 That, that was my, my, my experience as a kid growing up, it was like, Oh, well they're sprinters and you know, we're, we're slow at sprinting and we're, but we're distance runners. You know, that was like the frame. That was my experience. Um, and it's interesting to see, do you feel like social media has actually, this could be a positive aspect of social media. Do you feel like that's played a role in terms of um, African-Americans seeing more participation, seeing people like themselves, you know, accomplishing, finishing marathons or ultra marathons and inspiring yeah. others. And that's contributed. Yeah. So I, you know, I think social media has allowed for the narrative to shift around um, what's possible for black people mm. in terms of running, you know, it's just made the idea of doing things that were not the previous social norm, or maybe it was a social norm in some places, but now, even if I'm in a rules town, I can still connect with people that are in bigger areas and see that they're running distance and get connected and, and be more involved. So I think it's opened up opportunities um, for African-Americans to, to, you know, feel more comfortable in those spaces where they might've thought that they would only once. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked about access to sport and you raised an interesting point, which I think is great in terms of awareness and, and the conversation around these issues. You said um, something about disparity um, between white and black women when it comes to leisure time, um, which is, which is, I think, really important to discuss. And then also just in general, in terms of access, Jack always gives his, his spiel when he gives his talks, he talks about the ingredients of success and he goes on about, you know, he makes the point about access to different sports and, you know, do we have the best swimmers or the, the best tennis players, because if, if you don't have access to a pool or a lake all the time, you're probably not going to be a swimmer. You know, if you didn't have access growing up to a tennis court, you're probably not going to be a good tennis player. I always laugh when we watch, you know, fencing in, in the Olympics and how many schools across the U.S. offer fencing? You know, what percentage of the population have actually tried fencing or have had access to um, fencing, but running okay. is so simple, right? Anyone can go out the door and just and just run, and you don't need a lot of equipment. So I think it's important to talk about um, why access um, or participation hasn't until recently, and maybe it is social media in a large part. But what other other factors um, do you see? Yeah, so you know, I think. Um, you know, in addition to the social media pieces is also people just becoming more engaged in the activity. Um, so like there are more running groups around, like in my city alone, there are probably six or seven different um, running groups that sort of bring people together and, and give them more, uh, at least a sense of access to spaces and some of those groups cater to um, African-Americans. Um, like we have an organization called Black People Run, Bike and Swim. And so now you have three additional activities that are being led by uh, people from the local, Black people from the local community mm -hmm. that now opens the door for greater access. Um, I think we could do a lot more um, in the earlier um, ages to bring more um, kids to running. So, you know, there's the girls on the run program, but where's the boys on the run program? 
um, mm-hmm. you know, that would hit a, dem- a different demographics of, of kids to bring them to the sport. Um, other issues is people having a sense of, of safety. And when I mean safety, I don't mean um, that there are good sidewalks and you don't have to worry about getting run over by a car. Mm-hmm. But the other part is this sense of feeling um, comfortable and welcome um, yeah. in outdoor spaces. And historically, uh, particularly in the South, um, some of those spaces have not always been safe for Black people. And, you know, with this current climate around police brutality and and kind of, you know, because yeah. uh, running while Black and walking while Black is a real thing. There are some safety concerns that the people who are supposed to be um, <clears throat> you know, uh, are targeting people of color. And and I know that uh, there are many people who feel uncomfortable um, Mm -hmm. participating in running, something as simple as running uh, without being a part of uh, a group of people. And when you talk about also the disparity in leisure time, you're just making reference to um, something that's related to income disparity and, and poverty in general? Well, you know, um, we're not exactly sure what are all the reasons behind um, the mm-hmm. uh, disparities in leisure time, physical activity among women. You know, part of it is that women typically uh, bear the responsibilities within households. And so we just have more things to do. So now we're talking about time poverty. So do Black women have just less time to engage in the same activities as white women who may have more support um, to to be able to go out and do the activities? The other thing is um, a part of the um, African-American culture is the value around rest. So mm. you know, if you think about all of the responsibilities that Black women may have, part of that is if you value rest, then the space for engaging in this physical activity outside of the work and the other responsibilities may not be um, at the same level of priority. Right. Right. Especially if you have a woman working multiple jobs, raising kids, you've got stress. And then that, like you said, it accentuates sort of the rest. It's like, now I'm going to go for a run. <laughs> you know, how, how is that possible? You know? Um, yes. That's, that's the more extreme example, but even yeah. among <laughs> middle-class women, um, mm-hmm. if a woman is, you know, working a full-time job and she has to take care of the kids and the household, um, you know, where is that opportunity for her to practice this self-care um, in terms of like going for a run? And and yeah. I'm during the pandemic. I'm really starting to realize like, oh, my God, I don't know how people do all this stuff, because before it was just me in my household. And now I have my um, elderly parent with me. And so I'm having to juggle my schedule and I found myself running a lot at night. Hmm. Interesting. So let me, let me sort of segue. I want to get into a little bit more of your background professionally um, as a nutritional epidemiologist and discuss a little about when we first chatted, you talked about health and wellness standards um, and obviously obesity is a huge problem and especially in this country and um, so I'd like to just sort of chat about that and and some of the especially some of the misconceptions because I think what we're learning and correct me if I'm wrong is that um, just as Jack says we're all individuals and, and must train accordingly I think when it comes to dieting and um, a lot of that stuff, right? We're we're learning is more individual than we think. 
Yeah, specifically when we we look at body composition. So a little bit about my background. Um, I have a master's degree from Georgia State University. And while I was there, um, I primarily focused on um, sports nutrition uh, was one of my areas. And my thesis is all about looking at differences in body composition. And so we would use um, a DEXA scanner to scan people's body composition. And even amongst um, athletes, we saw a huge variation in body composition, um, which really was, the focus was on body fatness. And so we know that when um, athletes are very lean, they typically perform better um, in their sports, uh, especially running and things like tennis. Um, and so, you know, in thinking about that application, when we look at more public health focus, it's all about obesity, using BMI as a, a metric. And, um, you know, there, there are some issues with using BMI to look at individuals. Um, but BMI in and of itself is not that bad. It's a measure of people's weight relative to their height, but it doesn't really tell you everything about a person's body fatness. Mm. And so if we, you know, just look at someone and say, well, your BMI is 30 and you're obese without actually looking at the person. Um, Cause if you, you know, you have yeah. a, a, a football player who's, you know, competitive, he might be really big, but he could also be very lean and ripped. And so to use something like BMI to say, well, you're obese and you should go lose weight is mm. not physical. So, um, yeah, so you can have the same BMI, but obviously vastly different body fat compositions. Right. Right. And there are lots of things that influences a person's body composition. You know, you might want to look more closely at that. And so looking at a person's um, eating patterns, a person's training patterns. And so um, after I did my master's degree at Georgia State, I went on to UNC Chapel Hill to do a PhD and then um, to the University of Miami to focus on exercise science. And that's when I started um, transitioning more into, you know, really looking at how can we optimize a person's BMI um, through exercise or physical activity. And so a lot of that has to do with um, how a person may balance their, their diet with their activity. So, you know, in the general population, you'll have some people who are athletes who are very um, gung-ho about measuring everything, and then you'll have the rest of us. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, you know, in the even though I love sports and I still try to, um, you know, encourage uh, people to participate in sports, I'm also thinking about how we can um, each individual optimize their activity behaviors along with their eating to be well. And so to, to meet some of those metrics to decrease the risk of having hypertension or um, risk of diabetes, um, you know, and, and all those types of chronic diseases through physical activity engagement. So I want to step back just a little bit on BMI because I listened to your um, TED talk and I think it'd be great just so people understand the implications from a public health standpoint. Um, you know, of using BMI and, and some of the, the downsides? So, you know, I think that um, it's fine if a doctor measures a person's height and weight and puts it in their chart and say, you know, I, I think you should, you know, uh, try to manage your weight for mm. your health, given that your cholesterol is X or your blood pressure is Y. Um, but I think that needs to be followed up with support to actually target um, the behaviors. Because uh, one of the things I hear often, whether it's individuals that I'm engaging with or the students in my um, in my public health um, 
classes. But the minute I mentioned BMI, they just go ballistic. They're like, that thing doesn't work. The doctor said I'm obese. And it's mm. almost like uh, it's almost like a phrase that makes people just shut down. And so I would encourage, you know, um, healthcare practitioners to, to just to stay away from that. Go go straight towards the behaviors that you'd like for people to um, engage in the, the healthy behaviors. And um, if that's beyond your expertise, refer the person to someone who can help. Right. So the the number has become offensive to some. They're turned off. Um, and then you feel like it, it's not contributing towards a conversation around how to yeah. manage, manage your health at that point. It's just that's offensive that you're saying that I'm obese. And then the, the flip side, I think, is the, da- the big danger is someone looks at that score and then you're saying it can lead to anorexia, you know, when you frame this, you know, the state of your body in this way with the score, essentially. So um, in my TED talk, I talked about people um, having their access limited if they um, are suffering from anorexia. So, you know, insurance companies are using BMI as a guideline to either let someone into treatment or keep someone out of treatment. And that's not necessarily um, an, an effective way to use BMI. It's, it's actually not right because we know that Um, At the individual level, there's a lot of error. It doesn't tell you what a person's body composition is. And so, you know, when you lose so much of your muscle mass, you die. And so, you know, to get someone to fit into this BMI box to receive treatment is actually unethical. And so it's not that the BMI causes anorexia. It could limit someone's access to the care that they need. And, mm. and so, you know, we should really just use BMI for what it is. It, it gives you relative weight for how tall someone is. And from a public health standpoint, we can put populations into categories of risk. But on the individual level, we, we really should not be using that as um, a marker for how we care for individuals. Yeah, that makes sense. But what's the resistance to moving away? I mean, it's been around for a long time. Is there... Is there a scalable alternative or is it just something you think should be sort of, there should be less emphasis. It shouldn't be used in this way. You should talk sort of separately about the different, um, the different factors. Well, I think that we could use something that would probably be far more effective in um, understanding a person's body composition that's associated with um, disease risks. Like why not measure people's waist circumference? It's a simple measure. We know that there's some cutoffs based on risk, and it gives us a lot of information about whether or not a person is progressing towards um, diabetes or heart disease. And so it's it's that's it's it's not that hard. Like I've I've trained people on how to measure waste. Um, but for the individual, you could have them pull out a pair of you know jeans and put them on. You know, and can you button it? Yeah. And next time you come back, hopefully you can button it. And so, you know, you have people focus on the behavior and you use something other than a scale um, to measure success. And because it's that waste part that really matters for health outcomes anyway. Yeah. So I want to talk about nutrition, but what are some of the 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 main causes of obes- of obesity, excuse me, and and the misconceptions that are out there. Because I think we talked about this a little bit when we touched base initially um, in terms of misconceptions. I think the danger is this mentality of, well, just, you know, get up and be more active and, you know, stop eating. <laughs> like, like, that's so persistent still, uh, Dan. And age, and um, 
I don't I guess it's just a lack of information or or most people can be less empathetic if they're out running and working hard and and their bodies in in good condition that therefore they're less likely to consider genetics or other factors that that you might be seeing in in your research. Yeah, so you know in in the USA, the United States culture, we we are very much all about that personal responsibility. But obesity is a very complex disease, and not only is it individual level behaviors that contribute to obesity, there's also environmental factors. So mm-hmm. you know, people being under a lot of stress can affect your hormones, can that then can affect how your body stores fat. I mean, it's not that simple. And so, you know, we also have to think about like the social determinants of health where people live, work and play um, in terms of what access to food do you have? Uh, What access to spaces for being engaged in activity? What kind of job do you have? Are you sitting on your butt all day? Um, You know, or do you have breaks to actually eat? Meals at regular intervals, there's so many different things that go into this in addition to sort of some of those individual things, like individual level things like I'm stressed out, so I'm, I'm stress eating. Um, yeah. So why, why are you stressed out in the first place? So, you know, I, I think that one thing that we have seen in my past 30 years of doing research around obesity is that we're, we're pretty good at coming up with a myriad of ways of getting people to lose weight. The difficult part is how do you get people to maintain loss? And so um, I'm actually a part of a group that we're studying. um, What are some of the common things that people who lose weight and maintain that weight loss, what are they doing? Mm. Uh, And some of it is, you know, being more mindful by weighing themselves every single day. And so by doing that, they're, much more aware of what's going on and they can adjust their activity or their, their diet, um, you know, and they're, they're practicing other um, things like mindfulness or stress reduction so that they're not engaging in stress eating. So it's, it's, you know, we always want the simple answer, but there's, there's nothing. (laughs) Right. And in that case, why is it, my question would be, why does it seem like it has to be so hard for some people? To me, it's always like if it feels like it shouldn't be that difficult. Like if these diets work in terms of weight loss, um, and then some, it's so easy for someone to just put it back on, then we're really not emphasizing the right factors, you know? So the, for instance, like quality of foods, right? And how that can have an impact on metabolism, hormones, expression of genes, right? I think most people don't even realize that. They sort of are focused on calories, right? So is, is quality of foods, would that be one of them to you? That it's just people miss that entirely? It's the focus is on just being responsible, work out, work out, burn calories, burn calories, don't eat that dessert, you know? Yeah, I you know, I think that there's... um a lot of uh, misunderstanding about, you know, how, how do you even read a label and how do you know how many calories are in something? And so, you know, one of the tools that I've seen um, be very effective is, um, you know, kind of those app based where you can uh, put in the food you eat and actually see how many calories and how much fat is in a product. Mm-hmm. It's mind blowing for some people to see that, um, something that they thought was healthy, be so full of added sugar and added mm. fat. Uh, even myself, I was duped this, <laughs> I think probably for a while, but this summer I did um, a no sugar, no added sugar challenge with my online support group. And I started looking at all of those um, energy bars that you know, that I would use to fuel my runs and the total number of grams of added sugar that I should consume in a day is 25. So if I eat one of those energy bars, it had 18 grams of added sugar. 
it was healthy. And so even I was duped because I wasn't looking closely at the label versus what the criteria was for healthy level of um, sugar consumption. Yeah, I remember a coach telling me you know, 30 grams, I guess they were right in that window too. 30 grams added to it. Like there's no reason anyone should go beyond that. And whenever I tell runners <laughs> that they look at me like I'm insane and cause they can go past it probably with certain orange juice, you know, or they have a, um, you know, a, a can of soda or something and it's it's gone they have to drink have to drink water and <laughs> eat broccoli the rest of the day um so yeah i think people are sort of in shock do you have any confidence that with the state of our um you know the food industry and mass production of of our food do you have any confidence that this problem can be solved regardless of access to better health care and fitness and fitness participation is are we just you know sort of beating our heads against the wall because of the state of our food the state of going into your average supermarket and you know looking at what's affordable and you know what's what people are addicted to right i mean i would say is it wrong to say that so much of our food is addictive and that's another problem. Well, you know, I, I don't know that we can um, expect the food industry to change very much outside of um, our demand for higher quality foods. So mm. the market shifts as we shift. So if we really want to change the market. We kind of have to demand um, different items or um, really try to support the items that we want, like it blows my mind now to see all of the healthy food options that are um, available in the grocery store and how the price of, say, organic food has uh, come down from where it used to be. But a lot of that has to do with demand. You know, that's the, true. The, that's very true. Right. Yeah. The food industry is not going to change. They're, they're waiting for us to tell them what we want. And so I think the best way to influence that is really to educate people, no matter what their level of income is, how can you make um, the best food choices based on your budget and then demand those items in the marketplace? So do you, I mean, are you an advocate still of public policy? There has to be some regulation or restrictions as well as just encouraging and information and, and getting out, getting out there because i still go into small town supermarkets and you know the 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 organic or that's always funny to see, like the organic or the gluten-free section you know it can be this tiny little um like oh it's over there in that corner you know yeah. <laughs> um but I, I do agree it has it certainly has changed over the last 10 years or so um but i'm just curious if you feel like there still has to be some you know, public policy that that protects people, I think, from, you know, the big industry in terms of sugar and and addiction to some of these foods. Well, you know, I think we could have some policies policies that um, that lower the prices of um, of uh, healthy food options. And, you know, it depends on the, the states and the municipalities of whether or not they want to um, institute yeah. a soda tax or a junk food tax. And, you know, those monies could go towards, um, you know, really helping people afford more food. Um, you know, there's, there's also uh, several states that have um, dropped the tax on food, um, to, which would increase people's um, opportunities to, to purchase uh, more healthy food items, but, you know, they could leave the tax on, uh, on uh, you know, all the junk food. And so you'd have to pay a higher price for junk food. So I think that, you know, those are some of the approaches. Um, some of the things that we have seen that work is um, the food labeling, like in restaurants, mm -hmm. you know, when you see that donut has like 900 calories in it, you're like, 
you know, uh, I, I can't afford that. You so, feel like so, that is there research or evidence or do you feel like that has had an impact that that type of um, that type of implementation, just public health awareness? Yeah, so so some of that has an impact and there's some research. I, I can't quote any of it off the top of my head because it's kind of outside of um, my wheelhouse. Um, but we, we've definitely seen some shifts in consumption based on it being like right on the menu and right on the label that this thing is super full of calories. And um, the other thing... Um, uh, I can't remember. I was going to say something else about it, but you know, brain yeah. skin. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um, we'll talk. I want to jump right into your running and some of the ultras that you're doing. And because there's something that you said when we when we chatted recently about your consistency being injury free, especially during the pandemic. Uh, and you also talked about um, carbohydrates, and again, this ties into nutrition and dieting, and this this infatuation with the low carb, low fat diets, and how you need a lots of carbohydrates with all the running you're doing. So, talk a little bit about why you see this consistency, and why you think you've just managed to be injury free during this time. Well, so um, the part about being injury free, I think it's the Jack Daniels training that has mm. allowed me to be injury free. So it helps me um, keep, you know, stay mindful of uh, my training load. And so I've been able to perform at a high level without extreme amounts of um, training you know, extreme training volumes. So mm. in 2019, I completed two 100 mile races, the um, Lake Martin 100, which is here in Alabama. And I also did the Yeti 100 um, near Damascus, Virginia. And in both of those cases, I had, you know, some of my best times and best performances. Um, and, and I think I attribute a lot of that to um, my um, you know, VDOT training. And um, in addition to that, I've been doing a running streak. And I also realized that uh, over these last 746 days, that um, as long as I vary my volume, and um, allow myself to recover that I can go day in and day out. And I think a lot of that is also supported by um, my dietary intake. So I consider myself a, a part-time vegan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, for the most part, I eat a plant-based diet. And then some of the times I will eat seafood and, and other things. Um, <laughs> Uh, someone can ask me offline what those other things might be, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't need any meat. So, That's it. so, so definitely. So when you say part-time, you're not saying occasionally meat, you're saying um, for me, it would be pizza. That's where I would have to be part-time. But, um, but anyway, you're, <laughs> so you're, you're running all these miles. This is cool. Cause we just interviewed, um, Dan King, who's 61 years old, just ran 449 for the mile, which is the world record. And um, and mm -hmm. so we talked a lot about um, diet and, and nutrition. And so here's another great example with you, with your run streak, you're, you're injury free. Um, I don't like to do the knock on the wood, but I, so I don't, I don't want to, uh, to jinx you. <laughs> But you've been injury free, you're consistent, and you're mostly plant based. So it's really amazing to hear that. Yeah. So, you know, the majority of my diet is made up of carbohydrates, um, you know, lots of fruits and vegetables. Uh, but I pretty much eat oatmeal almost every day. 
every once in a while I'll switch and eat some um, grits because of the iron that's in it. And so I'll have like a giant bowl of grits. Um, and my diet is also uh, very low fat. So one of the things I realized um, in my own diet and especially related to my running, it was I was starting to get kind of fat. So even though I'm a, a, a small person, um, my body composition was shifting. You know, I'm, I'm not a spring chicken. Um, and so <laughs> my body yeah. composition was shifting towards more fat. And, and when I started to track my diet, what I realized was I was pretty much drinking olive oil. I was just using so much of it. Um, and, and I started, I shifted to using, um, a spray olive oil Mm. and, um, tracking my fat grams and I just leaned out. Um, it was, it was amazing, uh, to watch, but to replace those calories, I ate more, more carbohydrates. And, uh, if you look at the, the top, you know, long distance athletes in the world, uh, those uh, individuals are primarily eating a high carbohydrate diet. And, um, you know, yes, I have friends and people around me who swear by keto and all of that, uh, but I'm not a person that needs to lose weight. Um, I'm not concerned yeah. about uh, having heart disease or elevated cholesterol or anything like that. So uh, for me, a high carb diet uh, just works for my performance. Yeah, no, of course. Um, and then in terms of plant-based, obviously the concerns are always, you know, how do I get enough calories or am I getting enough protein? But it's just kind of touching back on quality versus quantity. Um, clearly you are getting enough protein and, and uh, calories, but do you feel like the advantage is, again, the quality over quantity with the plant-based diet? Yeah. And, and I think sometimes people um, get overly concerned about protein. You know, as adults, we actually don't need that uh, that much protein. Um, we just don't. We're, we're no longer uh, growing. Um, mm. You know, kids are growing. They're trying to build out their muscle. We pretty much have what we we have as adults. Um, you know, the, I think the main part is um, having a sufficient amount of protein. And I can, and you can get that. Uh, from very simple foods like beans and and rice, and some people will eat those little fake meat kind of things. Um, that's not <laughs> not something I eat, um, and I also don't really do like protein shakes or anything like that. So you know, you you really can um, eat a, a plant based diet in a relatively simple um, everyday types of foods. Um, you know, I think we get marketed a lot of things as athletes, but we don't necessarily always need those things. <laughs> Wait, so no impossible or beyond burger? Oh, no. Oh, no. It looks like dog food to me. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, you, you haven't. Have you tried either or no? You just you won't go near. I, I, I did. I tried. Um, I think it was the impossible burger when it first came out. It was in a restaurant and. They had taken off their black bean burger from the menu, which is what mm. I always got in the airport when I was traveling. And they said, we don't have that anymore, but we have this. And I was like, OK, I'll try it. And then the guy brought it out and I took a bite and it was so disgusting. I was like, no, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'll just have salad. Interesting. I actually thought it was kind of good. Uh, I was I was hopeful that Impossible Burger would, would maybe start to bring more people over to to eating more of a plant-based diet. I know, I think Burger King's even even sells it now. I'd be interested to get, like, do a survey of, of meat eaters versus um, vegan or vegetarians to see, you know, preference on taste. Like, if it's the meat eaters that come over and they're like, oh, that's actually not bad, whereas the vegans are like, oh, that's gross, because they're used to eating um maybe more of a traditional like you know black bean burger or a more traditional veggie burger um be interesting to see yeah so like I've, I've been to like a vegan restaurant and i've been with friends who have eaten the vegan chicken wings which i guess they they said it's like um the seitan yeah um, 
the the sauce and everything or um the vegan philly cheesesteak uh and 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 it just looked too crazy to me and so i ate salad and so some of the new people that were with us who tried the sort of meat alternative items they they were not very impressed so I, I I don't know about shifting, um, you know, those meat eaters to some of those other products, but I guess some people like it. <laughs> well, good luck in your future ultra competitions. We're going to be following you and um, keep us posted on your athlete progress on VDOT. And is there, are there any organizations or how can people connect with you and, and support some of the organizations that you work with? Yeah, so um, I have a website, oliviaafuso.com, and you can see some of the community um, programs that I'm involved with. I always put out a plug for um, Girls on the Run because it's an international program, and it really is an opportunity to give back to the community and contribute to the next generation of runners. So I will be dedicating my upcoming race, the Penhody 100. Girls on the Run program, and uh, I hope that I will be able to continue to inspire girls and women to be active, especially in the woods, on the trails. Oh, that's awesome. Thanks, Olivia. As a, as a, a dad girl of two young girls, I'm, I appreciate everything you're doing. So uh, thanks so much, and thanks again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Bye. Take care. Bye. I've been over